1: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Ndeen L. Anani, who is a senior lecturer in law and co-director of the Centre for Research on Race and Law at Birkbeck University of London. And we're going to be talking about her new book, Bordering Britain, Law, Race and Empire. So welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Um, I- I'm really delighted um, to-, to have you on to the New Books Network to talk about this book, for a whole variety of reasons, it, I think it's um, an incredibly important book for the moment um, that we're in. It's in some ways become even more important um, given the events um, of the last kind of three months um, or so. And I suppose the way to introduce the book is just by asking you to give a, a kind of a sense of, of what the key themes are in the text. I mean, what what's the, I suppose, the kind of the story of Bordering Britain? law, race, and empire?
0: Um, well, so I suppose the book is is trying to um, give a different or present a different understanding of what Britain is uh, in view of the fact that its immigration, um, asylum, and nationality laws um, emerged in... It's sort of contemporary immigration, asylum and nationality laws um, emerged in a a moment in which um, Britain was very much an empire, but seeking to define itself and re-identify itself as a legitimately bordered sovereign nation state and kind of sever um, its colonies and its imperial identity And it was doing that for a very specific reason. It was seeing successive defeats um, across its empire. It was um, having to essentially retreat um, from its colonies and there were successful independence movements. And so um, Britain had to define itself as a nation state in order to say, well, look, we may have been an empire but what we've plundered um what we've built with the wealth that we stole in the course of colonial conquest rightfully is in its rightful place here in britain um it belongs to white british citizens um and and so essentially it pulled up the drawbridge and uh indicated and this is actually the Home Secretary at the time of the 1981 British Nationality Act actually said this is about sending a message to um, people who have had a uh, connection with the British Empire Um, so Commonwealth and citizens and colony citizens um, colonial subjects sending a message to them to say just because you may have had that connection it doesn't mean that you have any right or um belonging in Britain and so what the book is trying to do is to place what we tend to see as sort of laws which just kind of fell from the sky Um, people generally understand immigration law as being a kind of obvious you know harsh but fair sort of system of determining who has a right to enter who has a right to stay who has a right to access to certain resources um who can be deported who um who can't, etc. we just tend to assume that the law is about justice and that it's fair. But actually, if we look at its origins, if we look at the political and social context in which it emerges, we actually see it as violence. We see it as colonial violence, um, as a continuation of um, colonial violence in essentially being about kind of being a final seizure of colonial wealth by saying, um, what is here belongs here and you can't have access to it. Because, of course, the effect of immigration laws that were passed in the 1670s 70s and the British Nationality Act was to uh, prevent people with histories of colonial dispossession, uh, predominantly, of course, racialized people, um, from being able to, to come to Britain.
1: I mean, the, the really kind of... I suppose, kind of concrete example that listeners um, you'd hope would be aware of, you know, through um, press reporting is the Windrush scandal that um, I suppose kind of crystallizes um, exactly the um, processes, the political decisions, the legal regimes that you've been, been talking about really and, and how it precisely shows actually the kind of, you know, the, the racialized nature um, of British citizenship, but also the quite deliberate attempt to, you know, sort of exclude, um, individuals from, um, particular, um, territories, particular rights, you know, from, from the kind of, um, I suppose the, um, being the subject, uh, that has access to, or, or is considered a citizen, um, and, and it'd be great to to, to kind of hear about um, the book's um, engagement with, with the Windrush scandal, really, both maybe um, as something that the book explains, but perhaps maybe as, as something the book is trying to respond to as well.
0: Yeah, so I suppose the first thing to say um, about Windrush, um, I mean, of course, my mind takes me immediately to the part of the book which looks historically um, – at the arrival of the Windrush generation, and at, at that time, um, the when so essentially, what what allowed um, or what enabled or what facilitated Windrush um, move the movement of, of the Windrush generation was a piece of legislation called the 1948 um, British Nationality Act. And this piece of legislation um, was not an immigration piece of legislation. It was a it was a piece of legislation that. That was passed by, um, um, was passed in Britain in order to try to hold together the British Empire at a time when the British authorities felt that um, the 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 strength of the empire, its stability, was being threatened by moves in um, dominions like Canada, South Africa, Australia to sort of move towards defining their own citizenship, which didn't rest on. Or derive from British subjecthood um, and an allegiance to the crown, but from um, um, but from a, a, a sort of um, uh, Canadian identity or citizenship um, in its own right. And Britain, um, British authorities felt felt worried about the effect of this in sort of severing what was an important political. An economic relationship between Britain and its dominions, and and so what it did is it wanted to reassert its power, um, the symbolic strength um, of the empire, and it did so through the the 1948 British Nationality Act, which rolled out a, um, a status called citizenship of the United Kingdom and colonies, um, which was essentially and was talked about in parliament as just being another way of saying british subjecthood um that this wasn't citizenship um and there was a sort of rejection of the republican flavour that citizenship had there were, parliamentarians were very clear that this was subjecthood but with another name um a name that really um sought to include and and signal um the togetherness um of the british empire Um, And so it was a colonial move. It was a move that sought to um, reinforce what is a very unjust, unfair, um, brutal um, system, white supremacist system and structure that was in place and that was the British empire. So that's just to say that the British Nationality Act of 1948 was not some sort of um, liberal move that was about facilitating the movement of racialized people to, to, um, to Britain. Um, in fact, at that time, movement wasn't contemplated um, that the movement that was taking place at the time was an outward movement. People were moving. White British um, people were being encouraged to move and settle um, in the colonies. Um, uh, and so, and that was seen as important for Britain because having a, a, a white British population settling, um, consistently settling the colonies was seen to be a, a way that Britain be a way that Britain could then, um, um, exert influence, um, and power over, over the dominions. Um, but what did happen is that, uh, people, um, racialized people, um, began to move um, to Britain um, because the opportunity presented itself, but also they were leaving places that were horrifically marked economically and socially and culturally by colonialism. They were leaving places where there were very few job opportunities. Um, they were suffering the effects of land dispossession, of slavery, of um, of resource extraction and so um people sought to uh, come to the motherland the motherland that was always presented to them as caring about them as being there as a place that they could identify with and identify as belonging in um which of course was a lie it was an imperial lie of unity and equality um which um, became very clear when people did attempt to move and Britain, the British authorities did everything that they possibly could to try to prevent that movement. And that's not the story that we're told today. The story that we heard when the Windrush scandal broke is that, you know, how could Britain treat um, a population that it welcomed, that it invited to rebuild after the second world war, rebuild the country um, to then, you um, and, and how can it then disenfranchise them in this way and treat them as though they don't belong etc but the reality is that that's that the hist, that, that that at the time that the windrush generation arrived the british authorities were very uncomfortable with the arrival of um racialized colony and commonwealth citizens and and short of passing legislation at that time which it was afraid to do because if it passed legislation preventing their movement, that would immediately um, destroy the lie that the empire was um, was stable and was a place of unity and and, a, and, a, and a, a positive influence in the world, and it would reveal the truth that it was a structure uh, based on um, and a system based on on ideas of white supremacy, racial inferiority, um, and so. And so there was a lot of resistance um to passing any kind of racially discriminatory um legislation so these people couldn't enter but there were lots of informal measures taken to prevent the arrival of um of, of the windrush generation um the um government lobbied it, it, the the dependency governments trying to make them um um stop the movement at source life was made very difficult for people when they arrived being, um, denied, um, access to, to housing, um, being left, um, in being neglected in conditions that were very difficult to live. There was a, there was a desire not to pass, um, anti-racist, anti-discrimination legislation, because that would again, um, make people think that, you know, Britain was a place that they could be welcomed in. Um, And so I think it's important to bear in mind that that's the reality of that historical moment. And because what that does is it allows us not to respond to the Windrush scandal today as being some kind of aberration and some sort of exceptional um, mistake or error that happened on the part of the government, a government that suddenly started treating racialized people here as though they didn't belong. No, this is... This is um, uh, uh, um, uh, an instance of racial or or colonial violence, if we want to see it that way, that is part of a long history of this violence. And the hostile environment is just another um, instance um, uh, in a long line of of, um, instances of colonial um, and racial violence, which is often embodied or expressed through or manifests in law. Um, And so one thing that the book does is it traces um, the immigration laws that were passed in the 60s and 70s and the nationality laws passed in in in, in, in the in, in the 40s and in the 80s, um in order to demonstrate how each one um should be read and understood um not as a um uh uh and sort of innocent piece of legislation that is passed, um, as any immigration law should to protect this a, a sovereign state, but actually, um, is itself an extension of colonial violence and an act of racial violence. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's really, um, well set out and really, really clear actually that, um, both, you know, historicization of, um, how the Windrush scandal, um, Came to us or, or occurred, um, but also I suppose the kind of the role of not, as you say, you know, uh, a sovereign state thinking about its immigration system, but rather legislation designed to kind of um, yoke immigration rights to whiteness, um, and you know, essentially the kind of the core racialization um, of both the white population and. Uh, potential um, immigrants through 1948, 1968, 1971, 1981. Also, you know, um, its roots um, at the turn of the 20th century. And I wonder if you you could maybe give a sort of like a flavour of that story across the legislation uh, about the role of um, whiteness and the connection between immigration rights and whiteness.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would like to say just so that... um Listeners are are aware of because we are talking now about whiteness and 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 the making of of Britain as a white space, and so I would like to talk um, about in particular the 1971 Immigration Act, just so that we're clear at the outset of of how law operates to produce um, racialization and to produce whiteness. Um, and so, uh, as I as I as I mentioned, um, when uh, uh, Britain the British authorities sort of um tried not to pass legislation up until um it was felt that actually it was worth it um that there were riches elsewhere um that there was the European Union to consider as a place where Britain could try to um exert its political influence internationally um and so the empire became less important in that sense, and Britain became willing to pass legislation that did racially discriminate um, and would clearly indicate um, an end to empire, um, as it as it had, you know. Mm-hmm. It, as, as in a different, in a different, so it would be presented in a different way, or it would sort of vanish in some way, um, and it would come to mean or symbolise something else. Um, you know, it would be in Britain's past rather than its 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 future, and it's sort of. Um, present configuration. Um, and that's not to say that colonialism went away, but but we'll come we'll come on to that. So what it did in the night with the 1971 Immigration Act is it introduced the concept of patriality. And this made whiteness intrinsic to British identity because only patriots, those with a, those born in Britain or with a parent born in Britain, would have a right of abode, so a right of entry and stay in Britain. And if we think that in 1971 a person born in Britain was 98% likely to be white, You can see there how whiteness becomes intrinsic to um, a sense of belonging in Britain and and, and indeed a right to be in Britain, to come to Britain. Um, And then we had the 1981 British Nationality Act, which continued this process of racial exclusion by then constructing British citizenship on the same foundation of patriality, the 1971 Act concept of patriality, which of course was invented. It's not something that that existed outside of this piece of legislation. It was, it was thought up to achieve this purpose of essentially preventing the vast majority of racialized people um, in Britain's colonies and Commonwealth from being able to come to Britain, but without actually writing into the legislation, if you're black, if you're brown, you can't come to Britain. But it's still nevertheless constructed um, as su- a white Britain, as close as possible that you could get to, to a white Britain. Um, and, and so when the British Nationality Act um, in 1981 also rested the concept of um, British citizenship to, to, to patriality, what it did was it... Um, Created um, this a, a territorially distinct Britain for the first time, and a con- uh, so it's distinct as, as from its from its colonies in the Commonwealth and a concept of whiteness a concept of citizenship that made Britishness commensurate with whiteness, and I think this served an important purpose because what it did was to indicate that Britain the landmass and everything within it belongs to Britons who of course were conceived and 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 constructed as white. In the legislation, um, and that's what leads me to say that um, the 1981 Act, although it was indicating an end to the empire, that you know the Home Secretary said this is, was about um, sort of a, a, a severing um, of that connection. Um, what it was actually was an act of appropriation. It, it was another colonial manoeuvre, a final seizure of the wealth and infrastructure that had been secured through centuries of colonial conquest.
1: I mean the, the the other thing going on which I was particularly struck by in that um third chapter was how th- these movements um within uh the kind of legislative uh, approach to thinking about um immigration and um citizenship and, and subjectivity were also effectively kind of like race management or um you know kind of race relations um tools and and techniques and it, it was it was particularly interesting actually thinking in, in those terms of you know on the one hand you've got a story of uh citizenship and immigration control but it's also a story about um what's essentially kind of you know um I don't know whether we'd call it like an internal um political control or you know um it's as much um about um the population in the country as it is Potential immigrants.
0: Absolutely, and yeah, when when the when the 1968 when the Commonwealth Immigrants Act of 1968 was passed, um, it was very much uh, uh, um, presented by James Callaghan, then Home Secretary, as being a, a kind of quid pro quo. Look, we we will pass this racist legislation. Of course, he didn't accept that the legislation was racist, um, even if it had racialized effects in, in terms of who was being excluded. Um, but, but 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 the idea was that we would pass this strict immigration control. Um, and that would then enable the British public, of course, conceived as white, um, to accept anti-discrimination legislation, and to accept those who are already here about whom we can do little. Um, and so absolutely there was this, um, kind of quid pro quo element to, um, to this legislation, but of course, um, it's, it's very problematic to think that by, uh, by enacting racism, you can somehow produce anti-racism. Of course, the opposite happens, um, because when authorities enact racism, um, this feeds then the the notions of entitlement among the white british population that that we have a right to be here and have access to this and they don't and and they begin to police the british public begin to then police um just as the the state polices its borders um through you know at the border um through the police within the border um uh through deportation the public also Um, embody and imbibe that sense of entitlement and then themselves enact through street racial terror or even a mindset about who is entitled to something and who isn't. And that's the thing that I'm really trying and hoping to challenge with the book is the mindset of bordering that um, is... is put in place or by law because of law or because of the idea that law is, um, is just and fair naturally. Um, and re- but really it's a prop. It, it's a prop that's used to teach white British people that they are entitled, that they're exclusively entitled to resources and to access to the, to, to the means of life, um, to things that, many people take for granted, um, and but that we should conceptualize as being what was plundered in the course of colonialism. Um, and it's to challenge that, to challenge that mindset and to see how law is used as this kind of prop to teach people about what they're entitled to. Um, and actually what we need is a counter-pedagogy. We need to be resisting that pedagogical effect of law, resisting that mindset, Um that particular people are not entitled to something that, 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 that others are.
1: I mean, that, that puts me in mind of the, uh, the end of the book actually. Um, and and I, I might sort of tease that, that thread out. And, and in, in some ways I kind of got the, the sense that not, not that you're sort of skeptical of, 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 of law, but, but, you know, you're, you're quite critical of the idea of like, you know, legal changes will equal social changes, um, you know, in this kind of like direct and, and sort of linear, uh, fashion, particularly, um, in the context of this long history of, um, both, you know, the kind of imperial or or post-imperial, uh, British states, but these instances of, of, you know, just kind of outright racism in, um, immigration law. And and I wonder, I was really struck by, um, I think the phrase was irregularized migration as anti-colonial resistance as, as, as the sort of, Um, counterpoint to I suppose that um, sense that you know legal uh, changes will equal social changes and I wonder if you you could talk a bit about that actually at at this point Um, because you've you know what you were saying about um, you know the kind of alternative pedagogy has really put me in mind of that um, that idea in the conclusion of the book. Um,
0: Yeah so I mean so the the idea of calling for um a counter pedagogy to that of law is about first asking um not just not just members of the public or the general readership of the book but also lawyers and those of us who spend our time whether academic or practicing lawyers you know um using the law as a means of trying to um make the situation for racialized people better or um have migrants be able to um, access rights and resources and actually to think about what it means to use um, uh, use the categories of refugee and migrant and citizen um, because, of course, they're all pitted against each other. And when we say, well, okay, a refugee has a right to be here, but an economic migrant doesn't have a right to be here, um, what does that do to the economic migrant? It makes them subject to um, harm, sometimes fatal harm, whether that's um, dying in the progress of seeking to reach Britain, um, or whether that's once they arrive being placed in detention, um, constantly subject to deportation, um, prevented from accessing um basic resources and left in destitution. Um, so these kinds of categories are are themselves um, productive of, of violence. And so when we use them, though we may be well-meaning because we are trying to do what we can within the limited constraints that the law offers us, um, we are also complicit in um, in that violence. Uh, and so I, supp- and I and a lot of lawyers know this. I mean, this is not something that lawyers don't know. and I think one thing I've been so so pleased about in terms of the reception of the book is how many um, practicing immigration lawyers have said to me um how, how that the book really speaks to them and that they they know from working within the system it's violence and how it operates and they feel themselves ensnared in it. Um, and that it's such a relief to have it articulated in the way that it is in the book. And that's really meant a lot to me because, of course, I feared that lawyers would say, well, this is just a, you know, a ra- thinking of a radical kind that doesn't really um, correspond to what we have to do on a day to day basis working in law, which I have a huge amount of respect for. And I understand that when people are working within um, as lawyers, y- you have to do what. You have to do with you have to work with the tools in the system and, and try to improve um, and 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 work for the individual that you are improve the situation and work for the individual um, that you're representing. That is really necessary day to day work of lawyers. But I think that as academics and as scholars and indeed as practitioners, when we step back from that work, I think it's important to be able to take that broader view um, and especially as an academic or, as uh, you know, We have sort of that luxury of thinking critically and honestly um, about the tools that we're working with. I think that that really obliges us to think a bit more long term about justice goals, not just think about, well, what can we do for this individual in this moment? But what can we do to change the system? What can we do about the structures that mean that we're constantly ensnared within a system where, you know, the more we struggle, the more violent it gets and the more caught up in that violence we get. And so that's what made me start to think about how we might be able to reconceptualize um, uh, law, immigration law Um how we can reject some of the categories um, of irregular migrant or economic migrant and think a bit more about um, how we might achieve long-term justice goals. And I think that for me, changing changing minds and the way people understand the law is the first thing. And so thinking through, you know, if we place Britain in its historical context and the context of it having been produced by you know, as a result of its colonial history, then actually, when we think about the thing called the economic migrant or the irregularized migrant, um, actually we can see them as being engaged, not in taking something that is not theirs, but actually taking something back that is theirs, um, as as that movement, irregularized movement, as being part of a long history of anti-colonial resistance. And that's not me advocating irregular migration, um, not because I think people shouldn't migrate to britain but because i think that that is a very that i would never tell anybody p- to put themselves in a situation where they could come across such hostile environments and such um such risky life threatening environments which of course <laughs> any kind of irregular travel um produces it's more to say that, that 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 is how we should conceptualize that movement as being a movement that is um that is not illegal. That is not wrong. That is not somebody trying to take something that is not theirs. But is precisely the opposite. Because if we actually think of Britain as being a product of of, of imperialism, then it becomes not a legitimately bordered sovereign nation state, but an ongoing colonial space, which is rightfully contested, and therefore um, irregularized migration becomes a resistance to Britain's claim to being. Um, a, a a legitimately bounded nation state that, that has a right to police its borders
1: I mean there's, there's so much uh, more that uh, I could ask you about the book and, and I guess that um, point that, that you've you've almost kind of concluded on um, around the obsession with you know kind of policing controlling borders is is like literally the moment we're in we're in now and I wonder as a way of kind of concluding the book. Um, you, you might comment on the shift away from um, the, you know, the kind of European Union regime and that kind of European uh, Union dimension of the story, which is in um, which which is in the book, and, and obviously, you know, the kind of um, the forms of EU citizenship and, and free movement are themselves dependent on whiteness and dependent on, um, you know, a kind of excluding uh, set of legal frameworks and. And, and bordering um, practices as well, and, and it'd be interesting to know that you know as as that regime seemingly is finished for the UK, and you know seemingly the government has has inserted a new one. Where does that kind of legacy leave us, and, and where will that be likely to take us? Do you think?
0: Yeah. So the story of of, of Europe does feature um, prominently in the book, as you say, um, because it because it's important. Um, in terms of timing, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the European, you know, the, the narrative that we heard around the the, the referendum um, was that, you know, leaving Europe would make Britain um, a, a global force again, um, a, a, you know, a, a global power to contend with again. Um, but actually, what people don't realise um, is that that was exactly the same um, rationale or reasoning that was used for Britain applying to join the European Union in the first place—that joining the European Union would be a sort of post-imperial move or maneuver towards um, newfound riches and wealth and an ability to exert uh, political um, I- influence um, and power internationally—and this was the argument. These were the arguments that were being made in the sixties and seventies when Britain was. Um, uh, discussing and and seeking to join um, the European Union. So, so what it shows is that Britain's um, notion of itself as being um, world leading and having and sort of occupying a, na- a natural um, position at the helm of the world um, is, is something that we still that, that, that Britain still very much um, lives with today, this kind of notion of imperial grandeur, both drove it into the European Union, and and then again, and then drove it out um, again. And so, so that so that's one important dimension, um, which kind of maybe um, if we un- if we understand that history, we can see it as foreshadowing the, the referendum result. Um, but also, what I wanted to to make very clear in the book is that the European Union is itself. Um, must itself be understood in its own imperial origins, um, because we can only understand how its laws function in very protectionist and exclusionary ways today. Um, You know, free movement is only for individuals who are uh, nationals of member states. Um, It is essentially a protectionist bloc that developed out of and, and with in the same, you, according to the same pattern, as Britain formed itself into a nation state, it was a very protectionist move around hoarding its what it had plundered in the course of colonialism. Um, the European Union did the same. These were member states, the founding member states were themselves emerging from their own failed and ending declining, um, defeated colonial projects and were very keen to find a way to club together, um, and maintain power globally, internationally. Um, and so I think it's important to recognize that that, that Imperial history, both Britain's and the European unions, neither has ever been reckoned with, um, And that actually what the European Union allowed for Britain was a kind of accommodating of its um, imperial uh, ambitions, so long as they were um, uh, compatible with the European Union's imperial ambitions which it very much had um, it sought to um it, it had a policy around Eurafrica, Africa it sought to uh, um, put in place policies that would see it able to continue to exploit both labor and resources um in Africa um and in a, it, of course in a, in a very exclusionary way which where again it was a it was a one-way flow of, of goods and and wealth etc into the European Union and at the same time of course the borders, the fortress of Europe was built very high in relation to people who were racialized, are um, being unable to 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 come to Europe. So, so it's an important history to tell because um, I wouldn't want people to think that somehow the European Union um, signifies um, a, a necessarily progressive um, ideal that Britain just couldn't sit with. I mean, it, it's a much more complicated history than that, and I think that we have to. To understand um, the European Union also as an imperial construct, and I think and that to take us a bit to where we are now, that partly explains why the European Union seems unable to deal with rising authoritarianism, with um, far right movements, with um, with um, rising executive um, power, anti democratic moves being made um, in various member states. And it, it can't grapple with that. And again, I think that for much of the same, um, many of the same reasons that Britain cannot grapple with its own legacies of of, um, of colonialism, whether we're talking about racism, whether we're talking about imperial nostalgia and amnesia and ignorance, the European Union also, also cannot because it has never reckoned with its own origins. The story we hear about the European Union, every sort of European Union law textbook Tell students that the European Union was about peace, was about um, peace and security to make sure that there was never a war again. And that's really simply not the story. It's not the history. And I felt it was important in the book to to put that history because I think it's only once we really, really know well um, history that we can actually begin to respond in the moment, respond now to to challenges that, that we face.
1: In terms of that, are those the kind of themes you're going to be doing or taking up in in, in future work? Um, I mean, obviously, hopefully the book is is a great success, and my impression is that it's um, made uh, major, you know a kind of a really major uh, splash in, in the UK at least, which is great um, and, and really important. Um, and and I guess you know the question is sort of um, how do you build on that, or, or where do you kind of go next with it?
0: I mean. To be honest, I think I'm tempted to say that I've said my piece on on this. <laughs> um, I don't. It's not that I will never say anything else about immigration law, but I do. F- I do feel now um, that I would like the book taken up um, for what it says about our present moment, because I think, as you say, it there's some. It speaks to things that have happened way after like way after I wrote it and submitted the final draft, we've had to deal with covid nineteen. We've had to deal with the government's response to covid nineteen, which is so, and you know, I look in the book about how the how a colonial logic um was applied to so-called natural disasters like famine um, starvation, um, in colonial contests, contexts where Britain would essentially, because it was, um, the British empire was a white supremacist system would simply regard populations as being surplus and therefore could be left to die. And actually this was nature's way of ridding the world of surplus populations. And so when famine struck, which was certainly not, A purely natural occurrence, but instead was the result of um, the way in which um, Britain ruled uh, places like India, places like Ireland, um, was very much a a, a British rule produced disaster and then exacerbated disaster. Um, This very same colonial logic, just as uh, logics of sort of uh, notions of imperial grandeur and and nostalgia came back to haunt Britain in the moment of the referendum. We see it now in relation to how the British government has managed COVID-19, essentially seeing that, um, you know, firstly, this is something that is happening elsewhere, this virus, it's affecting people who are not white, where bad in places where bad things happen. That so this exceptionalism around around Britain, and then this arrogance that comes of thinking, well, if it comes here, we'll obviously be better placed to deal with it. But then actually, when it's clear that dealing with it will require some sort of shift um, in how uh, uh, some sort of um, um, management um, and and attention paid to um, the sanctity of human life, instead what you see is this very same colonial logic of, well, look, it's the vulnerable who are going to suffer. It's the old, it's the surplus population um, that we can simply leave to die. And that was what Boris Johnson was saying when he was like saying he was tempted to take it on the chin and then saying that people will lose loved ones before their time. This is essentially, um, you know, making that sacrifice of people who are deemed surplus. And that, of course, Kind of hit British people as being um, something appalling, but is so familiar to uh, places who are who who have histories of British rule. You know, pl- places who are still suffering those um, that the consequences of of British colonial rule know exactly what it's like. It is not experienced. You know, it's experienced here as a kind of category error, but it is a very familiar. P- Um, form of, of government um, um, to simply be sort of left to die. And so I think that, I think, I think that the book speaks to, um, speaks to some themes without, you know, without speaking to them directly, because of course it's publication predated um, this, this current pandemic, this health crisis. But I think that if, if we let it, it will speak to how we can move away from and understand some of the violence that seems so shocking and and like an aberration or something that shouldn't have happened, but actually kind of see it as as having been foreshadowed by this history that 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 we need to grapple with if we're going to um, to be able to to um, to to stop responding to human life in ways that regard it as being. Um, unimportant or surplus or worthy of of sacrifice for some greater economic or capitalist goal.